Chapter Four of the Protector by Harold Binloss. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Protector by Harold Binloss. Chapter Four, A Change of Environment. On the evening after his arrival in Vancouver, Vane, who took Carroll with him, paid a visit to one of his directors and, in accordance with the invitation, reached the latter's dwelling some little time before the arrival of other guests, whose acquaintance it was considered advisable that he should make. Vane and his companion were ushered into a small room with an uncovered floor and simple hardwood furniture. It was obviously a working room, for, as a rule, the work of the Western businessman goes on continuously except when he is asleep. But a somewhat portly lady with a good-humored face reclined in a rocking chair. A gaunt elderly man of rugged appearance rose from his seat at a writing-table as his guests entered. "'So you have come at last,' he said. "'I had you shown in here because this room is mine, and I can smoke when I like.' The rest of the house is Mrs. Nairn's, and it seems that her friends do not appreciate the smell of my cigars. I'm not sure that I can blame them. Mrs. Nairn smiled placidly. Alec, she explained, leaves them lying everywhere, and I do not like the stubs on the stairs. But sit ye down, and he will give you one. Vane felt at home with both of them. He had met people of their kind before, and allowing for certain idiosyncrasies, considered them the salt of the dominion. Nairn had done good service to his adopted country, developing her new industries with some profit to himself, for he was of Scottish extraction. But while close at a bargain he could be generous afterwards. When his guests were seated he laid two cigar boxes on the table. "'Those,' he said, pointing to one of them, "'are mine. I think you had better try the others. They're for visitors.' Vane, who had already noticed the aroma of the cigar that was smoldering on a tray, decided that he was right, and dipped his hand into the second box, which he passed to Carroll. "'Now,' said Nairn, "'we can talk comfortably, and Clara will listen.' Afterwards it's possible she will favor me with her opinion. Mrs. Nairn smiled at them encouragingly, and her husband proceeded. One or two of my colleagues were no pleased at you for putting off the meeting. The sloop was small, and it was blowing rather hard, Vane explained. Maybe, said Nairn, for all that the tone of your message was not altogether conciliatory. It informed us that you would arrange for the postponed meeting at your earliest convenience. You did not mention ours. I pointed that out to him, and he said it didn't matter, Carroll broke in, laughing. Nairn spread out his hands in expostulation, but there was dry appreciation in his eyes. Young blood must have its way. Then he paused. You will not have said anything to Horsfield yet about the smelter? No, 
so far I'm not sure it would pay us to put up the plant, and the other man's terms were lower. Maybe, Nairn answered, and he made the word very expressive. You have had the handling of the thing, but henceforward it will be necessary to get the sanction of the board. However, you will meet Horsfield tonight. We expect him and his sister. Vane thought he had been favored with a hint, but he also fancied that his host was not inimical and was merely reserving his judgment. The latter changed the subject. "'So you're going to England for a holiday,' he remarked. "'You'll have friends who'll be glad to see you?' "'I've one sister and no other near relatives, but I expect to spend some time with folks you know. The Chisholms are old family friends, and, as you will remember, it was through them I first approached you.' Then, obeying one of the impulses which occasionally swayed him, he turned to Mrs. Nairn. I'm grateful to them for sending me the letter of introduction to your husband. He didn't treat me as the others did when I first went round this city with a few mineral specimens. He had expected nothing when he spoke, but there was a responsive look in the lady's face, which hinted that he had made a friend, and, as a matter of fact, he owed a good deal to his host. So you're meaning to stay with Chisholm? Nairn exclaimed. We had Evelyn here two years ago, and Clara said something about her coming out again. I never heard of that, but it's nine years since I saw Evelyn. Then there's a surprise in store for you, said Nairn. I believe they've a bonny place, and there's no doubt Chisholm will make you welcome. The slight pause was expressive. It implied that Nairn, who had a somewhat biting humor, could furnish a reason for Chisholm's hospitality if he desired, and Vane was confirmed in this supposition when he saw the warning look which his hostess cast at her husband. "'It's likely that we'll have Evelyn again in the fall,' she broke in. "'It's a very small world, Mr. Vane.' "'It's a far cry from Vancouver to England,' said Vane. How did you come to know Chisholm? Nairn answered him, Our acquaintance began with business, and he's a kind of connection of Colcahoon's. Colcahoon was a man of some importance who held a crown appointment, and Vane felt inclined to wonder why Chisholm had not sent him a letter to him. Afterwards he guessed at the reason, which was not flattering to himself or his host. The latter and he chatted a while on business topics, until there was a sound of voices below, and going down in company with Mrs. Nairn, they found two or three new arrivals in the entrance hall. More came in, and when they sat down to supper, Vane was given a place beside a lady whom he had already met. Jesse Horsfield was about his own age, tall and slight of figure, with regular features, a rather colorless face, and eyes of a cold light blue. There was, however, something which Vane considered striking in her appearance, and he was gratified by her graciousness to him. Her brother sat almost opposite to them, a tall, spare man, with an expressionless countenance, 
except for the aggressive hardness in his eyes. Vane had noticed this look in them, and it had roused his dislike. But he had not observed it in those of Miss Horsfield, though it was present now and then. Nor did he realize that, while she chatted, she was unobtrusively studying him. She had not favored him with much notice when she was in his company on a previous occasion. He had been a man of no importance then. "'I suppose you are glad you have finished your work in the bush,' she remarked presently. "'It must be nice to get back to civilization.' "'Yes,' Vane assented. "'It's remarkably nice after living for nine years in the wilderness.' A fresh dish was laid before them, and his companion smiled. "'You didn't get things of this kind among the pines.' "'No,' said Vane. "'In fact, cookery is one of the chopper's trials. "'You come back dead tired, and often very wet, to your lonely tent, "'and then there's a fire to make and supper to get before you can rest. "'It happens now and then that you're too played out to trouble and go to sleep instead.' "'Dreadful,' said the girl sympathetically. "'But you have been in Vancouver before.' Except on the last occasion, I stayed down near the waterfront. We were not provided with luxurious quarters or suppers of this kind then. Jessie nodded. It's romantic, and though you must be glad it's over, there must be some satisfaction in feeling that you owe the change to your own efforts. Doesn't it give you a feeling that in some degree you're master of your fate? I fancy I should like that. It was subtle flattery, and there were reasons why it appealed to the man. He had wandered about the province in search of employment, besides being beaten down at many a small bargain by more fortunately situated men. Now, however, he had resolved that there should be a difference. Instead of begging favors, he would dictate terms. "'I should have imagined it,' he said in answer to her last remark and he was right, for Jessie Horsfield was a clever woman who loved power and influence. Then she abruptly changed the subject. "'It was you who located the Clermont mine, wasn't it?' she asked. "'I read something about it in the papers. I think they said it was copper.' This vagueness was misleading, because her brother had given her a good deal of information about the mine. "'Yes,' said Vane, who was willing to take up any subject she suggested. It's copper, but there's some silver combined with it. Of course, the value of any ore depends upon two things, the percentage of the metal and the cost of extracting it. She waited with flattering interest, and he added, In both respects, Clermont produce is promising. After that he did not remember what they talked about, but the time passed rapidly and he was surprised when Mrs. Nairn rose and the company drifted away by twos and threes toward the veranda. Left by himself a moment, he came upon Carroll sauntering down a corridor and the latter stopped him. "'I've had a chat with Horsefield,' he remarked. "'Well,' said Vane, he may have merely meant to make himself agreeable, 
and he may have wished to extract information about you. If the latter was his object, he was not successful. Ah, said Vane thoughtfully. Nairn straight away, anyway, and to be relied upon. I like him and his wife. So do I, Carroll agreed. He moved away, and a few moments later, Horsfield joined Vane, who had strolled out onto the veranda. I don't know if it's a very suitable time to mention it, but are you any nearer a decision about that smelter yet? he said. Candidly, I'd like the contract. No, said Vane, I can't make up my mind, and I may postpone the matter indefinitely. It might prove more profitable to ship the ore out for reduction. Horsfield examined his cigar. Of course, I can't press you, but I may perhaps suggest that, as we'll have work together in other matters, I might be able to give you a quid pro quo. That occurred to me, said Vane. On the other hand, I don't know how much importance I ought to attach to the consideration. His companion laughed with apparent good humor. Oh, well, he answered. I must wait until you're ready. He strolled away and presently joined his sister. How does Vane strike you? he asked. You seem to get on with him. I've an idea that you won't find him easy to influence, and the girl looked at her brother pointedly. I'm inclined to agree with you, said Horsfield. In spite of that, he's a man worth cultivating. He passed on to speak to Nairn, and by and by Vane sat down beside Jessie in a corner of a big room. It was simply furnished, but spacious and lofty, and looked out across the veranda. It was pleasant to lounge there and feel that Miss Horsfield had good-naturedly taken him under her wing, which seemed to describe her attitude. "'As Mrs. Nairn tells me you are going to England, I suppose we shall not see you in Vancouver for some months,' she said presently. "'This city really isn't a bad place to live in.' Vane felt gratified. She implied that he would be an acquisition and included him among the number of her acquaintances. "'I fancy I shall find it a particularly pleasant one,' he responded. "'Indeed, I'm inclined to be sorry I've made arrangements to leave it very shortly.' "'That is pure good nature,' his companion laughed. She changed the subject, and Vane found her conversation entertaining. She said nothing of any consequence, but she knew how to make a glance or a changed inflection expressive. He was sorry when she left him, but she smiled at him before she moved away. "'If you and Mr. Carroll care to call, I am generally at home in the afternoon,' she said. She crossed the room, and Vane, who joined Nairn, remained near him until he took his departure. It was late the next afternoon, and an Empress liner from China and Japan had arrived an hour or two earlier, when he and Carroll reached the CPR station. The Atlantic train was waiting, 
and an unusual number of passengers were hurrying about the cars. They were, for the most part, prosperous people, businessmen and tourists from England, going home that way, and when Vane found Mrs. Marvin and Kitty, he was once more conscious of a stirring of compassion. Kitty smiled at him diffidently. "'You have been so kind,' she began, and, pausing, added with a tremor in her voice, "'But the tickets—' "'Pshaw!' said Vane. "'If it will ease your mind, you can send me what they cost after the first full house you draw.' "'How shall we address you?' "'Claremont Mineral Exploitation. I don't want to think I'm going to lose sight of you.' Kitty turned away from him a moment, and then looked back. "'I'm afraid you must make up your mind to that,' she said. Vane could not remember his answer, though he afterwards tried. But just then an official strode along beside the cars calling to the passengers. And when a bell began tolling, Vane hurried the girl and her companions onto a platform. Mrs. Marvin entered the car, Elsie held up her face to kiss him before she disappeared, and he and Kitty were left alone. She held out her hand, and a liquid gleam crept into her eyes. "'We can't thank you properly,' she said. "'Good-bye.' "'No,' Vane protested. "'You mustn't say that.' "'Yes,' said Kitty firmly. "'It's good-bye. You'll be carried on in a moment.' Vane gazed down at her, and afterwards wondered at what he did. But she looked so forlorn and desolate, and the pretty face was so close to him. Stooping swiftly, he kissed her, and had a thrilling fancy that she did not recoil. Then the cars lurched forward, and he swung himself down. End of chapter 4 Recording by Roger Moline